2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. We're just an hour away from the last Fed decision of 2020 in what's been an unprecedented year for the central bank. How unprecedented? Well, this year, the Fed's balance sheet has grown by more than $3 trillion. It cut rates to zero in a rare weekend move back in March. It went into uncharted waters with new facilities to buy corporate bonds and state and local government debt. It beefed up its commercial paper, buying, and announced an unprecedented Main Street lending program. And the Fed is still buying about $120 billion in bonds every month. And they've announced a new approach to inflation to keep policy loose. Now, all of this has certainly had an impact on the markets. Stocks have soared to all-time highs. The Nasdaq is up more than 40% this year. And the dollar has dropped. The dollar index is at the lowest level since last, or no, since April of 2018, actually, and on track for its first down year since 2017. The 10-year yield parked under 1% as the Fed buys up more than half of the massive government bond supply needed to fund these pandemic relief efforts this year so given all of this and with that decision about an hour away where do we go from here joining me now brian belski is chief investment strategist at BMO capital management julia coronado is founder of macro policy perspectives and subhaja rajapa is head of u.s rate strategy at society Generale. this is our fed power panel so it's great to see you guys again um, brian i'll start with you on, on stocks specifically here and expectations for the feds announcement let us not forget Even if they don't do anything new, they're still pumping a ton of liquidity into a market that has roared back from the lows with an economy that's still growing and a vaccine that's being administered now.
3: Right, Kelly, and thank you for having us. Uh, That $80 billion number continues. I think the Fed has basically done two very, very big things. It's not what you say, it's what you do. They've been very clear that they stand at the ready. Uh, And this notion what happened in August was a really big deal in terms of changing uh, their focus from inflation to unemployment. And I think that really set the market ablaze in terms of higher prices. Now, going forward, clearly on a near-term basis, it's about stimulus and what we're going to see from Mr. Biden and Ms. Yellen in January, February. So this could be one of those things, uh, one of these meetings where it would be the most meaningless meeting in an uh, unprecedented year, as you said in the onset. But the Fed's going to continue to purchase, and I don't think they're going to see any, any big deviation from that program.
2: Right. But this is a huge program, Julia. So, you know, I, th- I think it's what, 80 billion in treasuries, 40 billion in mortgage-backed securities. Um, ch- you know, again, all of this was instituted when the crisis was at its apex. Um, although the case count is still bad, it's a very, very different uh, economic situation. Is it still justified to keep these programs going the way that they are? And do you expect any changes today?
4: Absolutely, it's justified. We're still actually very much in the thick of the worst second wave that they had imagined. The vaccine is great news for the horizon, maybe mid 2021, but in the near term, we see the economy slowing. Uh, we see that fiscal support running out. We see activity shutting down because of the virus spread. So I actually do think that they're gonna come to the table. Their asset purchase program is pivoting from market stabilization to monetary support. What we're going to get today is guidance that reinforces their commitment to continuing these purchases. And we do expect them to extend the maturity of their treasury purchases as part of that pivot to monetary
2: support. Yeah, that latter one, Subhadra, is uh, potentially the change that we could see today. Uh, The Fed buying more, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, on the longer end. What impact is that going to have uh, on bond yields? And what impact is it been having already. I mean, it is pretty remarkable that the bond market, while it's up off the lows, is still, you know, with has a 10-year sub-1%.
5: Yeah, and that's the reason why I think I disagree with uh, Julia. I don't see the need for the Fed to announce a uh, weighted average maturity or a WAM extension in the SOMA portfolio. Financial conditions are extraordinarily easy. Equities are at all-time highs. Interest rates are at at you know lower than one percent, and the and the yield curve is not as steep as as people think uh, it is. So I really don't see a fundamental need for the for the Fed to extend the average maturity of its of its portfolio. What they what they really should do is stand pat and use this as a tool sometime next year when they really are going to taper asset purchases, very much uh, similar to what the Bank of Canada is is is, is doing, which is. Tapering asset purchases and extending its average maturity of its of its debt holding. So I think using the weighted average yeah. maturity extension at a later time
2: would be useful. And Subatra, so that people kind of know what we're talking about with this tool. Uh, basically, one concern, an understandable uh, concern, is that you know longer b- bond yields, ten year, thirty year, could start to rise. You know, if we turn the corner, uh, the outlook looks better. You know, the vaccine is getting distributed. The case, you know, we kind of get through the worst of the pandemic. Well, then you'd think at some point, you know, the 10 year goes to, I don't know, two, three percent, you know, something of that magnitude. And then at that point, if the Fed stepped in and bought more of it, maybe they could push those yields back down. Now, there are plenty of people who are skeptical, Subhadra, that that would even work. But at least they could kind of direct their firepower that way. It does seem a little strange for them to unleash that firepower now.
5: I'm in complete agreement with you, Kelly. I think that Uh, Like you mentioned, I think that, you know, interest rates are very low. And and the communication channel from the Fed has worked out really well. Ten-year yields are not rising. We're seeing a very sharp rise in inflation expectations. Real yields are declining quite sharply. Uh, So the messaging from the Fed is working out from an inflation expectations perspective. But nominal yields are still well below 1%. So for me, you know, they're way better off using this tool at, at a later time when interest rates start rising, let's say they get to 150 or 175 in a very short amount of time, that's when they should be using uh, the WAM extension tool
2: yeah brian let me turn back to you with some of the other developments you know we talk a lot about what stock prices have done but obviously you know the weak dollar is supporting a run-up in commodity prices silver's up 40 percent this year we've been talking all week with people who are really bullish on commodity prices and think they'll keep rising from here um so you know talk a little bit about that i mean are these price gains which include everything to the u.s housing market uh, starting to become unjustified for, from your point of view. I mean, are we building up risks in the market as the Fed at some point is going to have to start thinking about this taper?
3: Great question. Uh, you know, I think a taper tantrum is, is, is coming, but not anytime soon as early as maybe late 2021, 2022. I think the dollar trade is clearly um, a momentum trade in that downward direction, much like other asset prices. We would say that we would want to taper that dollar weakness. And there's no doubt that when and if we get another big stimulus package, the dollar's going to weaken, but that'll be the low. We really believe that, especially given the fact that Corporate profits in the United States are going to be up 35% according to our models. And with respect to continued fundamental volatility in emerging markets in Europe, it's kind of the tail wagging the dog. I think emerging markets in Europe have seen strength because of dollar weakness. And you never want to buy an asset because of currency weakness. You want to buy an asset because of fundamental strength. So we would be very, very careful using any kind of dollar-denominated strategy to only buy that asset because of dollar weakness. And we think a bottom is going to be more yeah. likely than not
2: what about Bitcoin uh, Brian I mean it seriously it's above 20,000 today and it, it would seem more on fundamentals that relate to the world's largest asset and money managers piling in than dollar weakness per se
3: Again, another thing that really worries me about from a momentum standpoint, uh, you know, and any time I see the Bitcoin uh, marker in the bottom of your screen, too, that makes me nervous. I think that's a contrarian signal, by the right. way, uh, that it's become so it's become so exciting that we're watching Bitcoin. But I'd be careful there, especially Bitcoin is supposed to be uh, non-correlated with gold and they're both been positively correlated. So I'd much rather be a, a gold owner than Bitcoin.
2: Well, that's because you're old school. you got to get with the times. Uh, Subhadra, I'm not going to ask you for your thoughts on Bitcoin. No no worries there. But it is a lot of people who are buying Bitcoin. If you look at the big UK fund manager that just did, they're pointing to their concerns about currency debasement and financial market instability. In Europe, the European Central Bank is projected to buy more than all the government debt that's issued this year. And, and you, again, wonder from a rates point of view, I guess it works for now. I guess that's how German bond yields are still negative, but that doesn't seem sustainable.
3: Uh,
5: That's absolutely true, but that's the way that they're approaching to stimulate the economy. Clearly the difference between the Fed and the ECB is that the Fed is buying uh, quite a lot, but not nearly as much as the amount of supply that's gonna hit the market. But in Europe, they are buying quite a lot of the, the new supply that's coming into the market. That's why we think that during the course of 2021, the yield differential between uh, treasuries and bonds is going to widen, i.e. 10 year yields are going to underperform bonds as yields rise. So that sort of paradigm, I think, is is going to be very much in in play. Also, inflation in general in Europe is very, very low. So the ECB is trying its very best Uh to stimulate uh, the economy as well as uh, increase inflation expectations.
2: All right, a final question, uh, Julia, to you before we go. What else should investors have top of mind as we await the decision uh, in an hour's time? And then the remarks from Fed Chair Powell today. Yeah, so this is the, the Fed chair that said last year an ounce of prevention
6: is worth a pound of cure. So I do think that Chair Powell wants to reinforce exactly that reaction function that you, you, we've been discussing that's supporting markets. Uh, and doesn't want to wait for the yield back up uh, in order to uh, step in. So I think that um, what we're going to get from the guidance on the asset purchases is meant to reinforce that new reaction function they rolled out in September with their interest rate guidance. So how they roll out that guidance
4: on asset purchases is going to be very important for thinking about markets going forward.
2: All right. We'll leave it there for now. There's going to be a whole lot more in about 50 minutes time. Thank you all, Subadra Rajapa, Julia Coronado, and Brian Belsky on the Fed decision and these markets. Speaking of the government's pandemic relief efforts, there seems to be continued momentum on Capitol Hill to get another relief package done. Elon Moy is here with the very latest at this hour. Elon?
7: Well, Kelly, another COVID relief deal is within reach as leadership from both parties say that the negotiations have entered the final stages.
1: We are close to an agreement. It's not a done deal yet, but we are very close.
3: We made major headway toward hammering out a targeted pandemic relief package that would be able to pass both chambers with bipartisan majorities.
7: Now, multiple sources tell me that package would be worth $900 billion as Democrats give up on their demand for direct funding for state and local governments and Republicans relinquish liability protections. Instead, the deal would include another round of stimulus checks, which have been a top priority for the White House, some Republicans and progressive Democrats. I'm told the amount would be about $600 a person, though that number could still change and that the deal would still include enhanced unemployment benefits. At the same time, lawmakers also appear to be on track to reach a comprehensive spending agreement that would keep the government funded through next fiscal year. That would be a one point four trillion dollar piece of legislation. And Kelly, if all goes well, the House could be ready to vote on this combo package tomorrow before the government runs out of money at midnight on Friday. Back over to you.
2: Very, very interesting. So the stimulus checks are back. This would be half the size of the previous round. Um, in the last bill, the, the sort of tit for tat was, okay, we'll do the stimulus checks, but not the extra $300 a week in, in unemployment benefits. So for the extended benefits you're talking about, would that include a boosted payment now or not?
7: That's what it's sounding like right now, Kelly, that, of course, we have not seen all the final details of this agreement. And it does seem like there is uh, some openness to doing a six hundred dollar stimulus check versus a twelve hundred dollar check. We've heard already from both uh, Senators Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley, who have been behind the push to include stimulus checks in this deal. They say that's a good start. Of course, they still want to see more money. Um, So this could be um, that thread of the needle that allows Congress to get something passed and can make all sides happy. But again, we are waiting for the final text, but it looks like they are closing in on this deal after so many months, Kelly.
2: All right. Elon Moy, Snowy Washington. Thank you so much. Coming up, biotech's breakout. The sector ETF, the XBI, is on pace for its best year ever, up 52%. Can the rally continue into 2021? Well, Jeffries says yes. They'll join us with their top buys next. And another day, another IPO, but something missing today is a huge first day pop. We're going to look at what's going on with Wish down 13% right now, right after this. Stay with us.
1: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
6: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise, our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. It has been a banner year for biotech stocks. The S&P biotech ETF taking some profits today after being up more than 50% this year on track for its best year ever. Among the big winners in the space... Twist Bioscience, a diagnostics company, up more than 500% this year. Fade Therapeutics, working on cancer treatments, up more than 370%. Ultragenics Pharmaceutical, Biopharma, up more than 270%. Its biggest holding is Moderna, whose COVID-19 vaccine could receive emergency use authorization this week and is up seven or 600% this year. So you'd think, well, it's time to take some profits. But my next guest says the rally can continue into 2021. With me now is Jared Holtz. He's Jeffrey's healthcare strategist. Jared, it's good to see you again. And I mean, the first thing to point out before we get into your call for next year is that it's not just the vaccine names that are doing well this year. I mean, the companies I named are in a host of different uh, areas.
8: Certainly, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate that. Um, Yeah, it's it's a broad-based mix of companies there are a bunch of diagnostic companies, testing companies, um, and you know innovative life science companies that comprise the XBI. So even though the vaccine stocks have been a, you know, obviously a very big component of the performance this year, there are so many other facets within the biotech complex that have made for, as you alluded to, the best year on record for this index. So I think it can keep going. It's very, very difficult to parse out the the effect of Moderna, Novavax, and some of these other vaccine stocks. But even if we were to strip them out, we would, I believe, still be looking at a 40 to 45 percent year, which is, you know, obviously very good.
2: Yeah. Why is it that you think all of a sudden a lot of these names have seen the success that they have? I mean, is there just uh, the timing of a lot of R&D coming to market this year in a successful way? Has there been some change on the policy or political front? What, you know, what, is there a common thread, I guess, between all of these outperformers?
8: It's so difficult to know. Um, I think there are, there are several components or, or facets that have led to this sort of performance this year. I, I think the first is that biotech has finally gotten some momentum behind it. We've been talking all year about the fact that the tech sector seems to go up irrespective of what the broader markets are doing very consistently and over you know a five or six year period going back to 2015 the various tech indices are still outperforming biotech by two to one uh, about twenty five percent versus twelve percent on average um, on a year-over-year compounded basis so in my mind biotech still has some time to catch up and you mentioned the political backdrop you know we've been writing for a while we think it's getting better the trump administration um, if nothing else, was very noisy and provided a lot of what I would consider to be unnecessary volatility. We're not exactly sure how the Biden administration is going to shake out on drug pricing. But I think by and large, it'll be a much more quiet four years ahead for it.
2: Although you do think there could be a wave of dealmaking, is that right?
8: M&A is, is always a big component. I mean, we've seen a couple of transactions this week. AstraZeneca buying Alexion. Um, you know, yesterday Eli Lilly made a small transaction in the space. We think this will keep up. There's really no reason not to. I think all of the pharmaceutical companies in large cap, basically, um, you know, suffer from you know similar consequences. Which is the larger they get, and the larger their drugs become, the more significant the loss of exclusivity on, on key major branded products becomes. It, it almost is a is a circular reference in terms of their need to go out and, and find targets that will enable them to grow again. So M&A has been intermittent. It probably hasn't even been that big of a year relative to expectations heading into 2020 because of how good the the latter portion of 2019 was from a deal-making standpoint. We've had a few lately from a volume standpoint, not as much as we would have thought, but some very, very healthy premiums along the way. And I would would venture to guess that 2021 is gonna be very active here again.
2: Yeah, but bottom line, you think this, this whole sector can do well, even if there's profit-taking in Moderna and the other vaccine names, because they are big components.
8: Definitely. I mean, that's been, the, that's been the sort of the shakiest ground in this entire um, index has been the vaccine stocks and, and their weightings and, and how to sort of look at the XBI components, you know, irrespective of what's happening in the vaccine landscape. And I feel like once these, all these stocks rebase, Moderna, Novavax, and they sort of come back in a little bit, um, as well as some of the other high flyers, we've seen some massive moves in rare diseases and oncology as of late, um, you know, doubles, triples, even, even more so over a very, very short period of time. I think they, they will also come in, we've been talking about maybe a little bit more um, bias towards value-oriented biotech companies for mm-hmm. the first time in a while post the Alexion deal. So I think all of these are, um, you know, more bullish signals than not as we head into into next year.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating and a good reminder of what else has been going on in the biotech space, certainly putting the tech into it from a trading point of view this year uh, in the performance. Jared, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Jared Holtz of Jeffries. Coming up, one state accusing Robinhood of gamifying the market and manipulating customers. We have those details coming up. But first, check out this mystery chart. It's flying high. Speaking of deals on a deal of its own today, we'll reveal who it is and stocks to watch next.
0: (laughs)
2: Welcome back to the exchange. Bitcoin gets all the attention today because while it's broken out to new highs, the Dow's down 68 points right in the middle of its range today. The S&P's up three and the Nasdaq's up 36. Take a quick look at the sectors where technology is at least among the leadership today. That kind of gives you the sheen uh, for the main sectors that are in the driver's seat, tech up half a percent, consumer discretionary up two-thirds of a percent, utilities, industrials and materials. On the flip side, those are lagging. Here are some of the movers this hour. Shares of Tilray are sharply higher on news it will be acquired by Afria. The Canadian cannabis companies will combine in an all-stock deal to create the world's biggest cannabis producer. Afria shareholders will hold 62% of the combined company, and they're paying a 23% premium over Tilray's Tuesday closing price. Even Afria up 3%, Tilray up 23%. Shares of Twitter are higher on an upgrade to overweight from neutral over at J.P. Morgan. This on expectations of a big rebound in online advertising next year, nearly 3% gain for Twitter. And shares of Chipotle, 52-week highs today, up about 5% on an upgrade to buy at Stifel. They're pointing to resilience during the pandemic and say the brand is well-positioned to benefit from increased customer mobility in 2021. They have a $1,500 price target on Chipotle, which is up, as I said, almost 5 bucks a day to $1,412. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News Update. Hi, Sue. Hi, Kelly. Good to see you. Hi, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. In Paris,
6: 14 people have been found guilty for their parts in the 2015 attacks against the Charlie Hebdo newspaper and a kosher supermarket. The sentences ranged as high as 30 years. Also in Paris, a former Vatican ambassador to France has been convicted of sexual assault. The 76-year-old Luigi Ventura was given an eight-month suspended sentence for sexually assaulting five men between 2018 and 2019 back here at home in new jersey a food line stretching for more than two miles volunteers and ymca staff load each vehicle with 40 meals at this location alone they are giving away 200,000 meals per month that is nearly triple what they gave away during the summer and the sec is easing reporting requirements on payments by oil and mining companies to foreign governments the move addresses a controversial part of the dodd frank act that was supposed to make it easier to spot corruption. You are up to date. That's the news update, Kel. I'll send it back to you. Sue, did they say where that food line in Jersey was? You know, there are several of them. This particular one is more towards central Jersey. It's a smaller town, but it's a part of New Jersey that has been hit very, very hard with layoffs. You know, people have lost their jobs, and it has gotten worse since the summer. So, unfortunately... They are giving out basically more no, meals like than they ever have. No, it's like are getting in the have. car,
2: cleaning out the pantry. It, yep. It's uh, it, two miles long. Triple what it was this summer uh, is a horrifying sight, So It is. Appreciate it. You got it. Uh, Sue Herrera with our CNBC News update. Coming up, Exxon gets more love on the street. Bitcoin bursts through 20000 Wish goes public without the IPO pop. And how about a SPAC for a person? It's all coming up on The Exchange. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple other stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire, and here to break down the headlines, we welcome Michael Santoli, Seba Modi, and Bob Pisani. First up is the tide turning for Exxon. Goldman upgraded Exxon Mobil today to a buy and is raising its price target to 52 from 42. They're citing the firm's bullishness on crude that you heard about here on Monday. And it's a second upgrade in as many days for Exxon. Yesterday, Wells Fargo raised Exxon to overweight, saying it is, quote, their most eyebrow-raising ratings change. I mean, an overweight. But is it? Exxon is already up 28%, Mike, over the
1: past two months. Yeah, so the market has sort of, uh, I guess, prompted some of this reevaluation of whether, in fact, the – the worst was priced in a month or two ago, and now we can bet on higher volumes as uh, the world reopens in terms of uh, fuel consumption. And then also we see the higher prices. Uh, it's very unclear as to whether, in fact, this is going to be any kind of a long term renaissance for, for Exxon. Still questions around uh, the dividend policy and all the rest of it. But uh, just on any long term basis, it looks like just the pendulum swinging back in, in a mean reversion way uh, in favor of energy for a little while would probably continue to be a reprieve for this group.
3: Bob?
9: Yeah, that's why I'd say me, I, agree with, I agree with Mike. It's it's about mean reversion. That's why I don't think this is such a bold call. They talked about uh, multi-year underperformance. This stocks down like 40% in, ten, in the last 10 years. It's one of the worst performers in history. At least 40%. I think it was $70 10 years ago. It's $40 now. Think about that. In 10 years, it goes from about $70 to $40. That's pretty outrageous how many companies do you know have almost exclusively sell or hold by the entire analyst community that's what Exxon does right now almost exclusive. all right Wells Fargo and Goldman that that's why I'm saying it's not that bold a call overall and the only reason the stock's been rallying is because they're cutting capex in 2021 to protect the dividend that's a good reason for the stock to rally but just you know bear in mind what's going on here we're talking from a very low base
2: Yeah, or maybe a good reason to rally in the near term. It doesn't look that great longer term, SEMA. And then they have the headwinds of disinvestment in the space over the next, you know, forever, uh, whereas people just don't want exposure. But again, that's that's partly why there's this bull call. Jeff Curry, the Goldman uh, Commodity Strategist who was on earlier this week, said he thinks this is like a multi-year run and disinvestment is one reason. Also, just in general, there's uh, more demand than supply right now
10: could be and but it is also interesting the timing of this Goldman call Kelly right as President Biden uh, coming in January he certainly made clear his prioritization of clean energy policy so you wonder how that will work into this thesis that ExxonMobil despite that will continue to thrive you know what this call also reminded me of Rex Tillerson where did he go he was Secretary of State for one year from 2017 to 2018 prior to that he what? led ExxonMobil for 10 years uh, I wonder what he's up to these days
2: that seems like so long ago. It really does. That, if you told me that was 15 years ago, I would believe you. Uh, if you want more, by the way, analysis on Goldman's upgrade of Exxon, go over to CNBC.com slash pro and they have a lot more on that. Bitcoin finally broke above 20,000. That level has been eyed by buyers of the cryptocurrency ever since late 2017. We're well above 20K right now, up about 6-7% on the session. and Again, over the last 24 hours, it The thing never stops trading. Anyway, the excitement has even caused major cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase to suffer connectivity problems and network congestion. Seema, any reason for this kind of particular uh, 24-hour move?
10: Well, I think looking at Bitcoin purely through the lens of that price chart can sometimes be a little less stimulating, but when you look at it uh, in the context of other things that are happening, whether it's the U.S. dollar, which has declined about 11.5 percent since mid-March, and this expectation that it will continue to depreciate into 2021, and also this idea of inflation uh, moving only higher into the next year, and what that could mean for investors, their desire to continue to diversify their assets beyond equities and even gold, and perhaps there is a case there. but. No real signal this time around. Jerome Powell in the past, he certainly has mentioned cryptocurrencies. It will be interesting to see if it comes up in today's Fed meeting, Kelly.
2: And Bob, I'm looking at all the big money that's pouring in. So you've got the UK fund manager yeah. Ruffer. It's put $750 million into Bitcoin. This all follows Mass Mutual last week did $100 million. They're widely seen as kind of the... The sort of tip of the spear for institutional investors to all do the same thing. If you get everybody putting half a percent of their portfolios into Bitcoin, J.P. Morgan says that's $300 billion that could go into it.
9: Right. So there's still not a lot of money there and there's a lot of move to move up. So why has Bitcoin been moving? Look at the chart. Put the chart up again. It started moving in October. That's when PayPal and Square started talking about buying Bitcoin for their money transferring services. Okay, so that answers one question. What is Bitcoin? Is it a means of payment? Everybody said, no, nah, it moves around too much. But when you have companies like that, well yeah, maybe it's becoming more of a means of payment, potentially. What about as a store of value? That's another value uh, purpose for money. Well, you've got people, Stanley Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones, Bill Miller, all starting saying positive things. That helps people believe that maybe there is a store of value associated with it. So it makes a little bit of sense. You want to see an ultimate move here. There's a new closed-end fund that just started uh around cryptocurrency the bitwise 10 crypto index fund it tracks an index of the 10 largest cryptocurrencies the symbol is bitw trades on the pig sheets now this is a closed end fund it's not an etf it's trading at a huge premium to its net asset value people should know that about it but that's a sign of the Hmm. huge interest in this when you get a closed end fund trading at a gigantic premium that's an indication of a lot of demand
2: Oh, yeah, you often try That's to buy them on a discount. Michael, last word here.
1: Well, and just the one thing to add is it just caught the same gust of speculative forces that has been pushing up a lot of different assets. It's gotten people excited about digital money as a concept. Uh, and it's happening in the absence of real world transactions or even technological use of uh, of, of the blockchain. It, it, re- it really is. We created a speculative asset class and it's working as one. And we've been asking for thousands of years why anybody cares to put money in gold. And that's the same kind of question you have to ask about Bitcoin.
2: Right. And if you think Bitcoin speculative, wait till you hear our next story or no, no, we'll do Wish first, then we'll talk about SPACs. But anyway, let's start with Wish. The e-commerce firm uh, Parent Context Logic, which does business as Wish, started trading today on the NASDAQ. This is a different story from the IPOs, the Airbnb, uh, the DoorDash. This one priced at 24, which was on the top end of its range. It was 22 to 24, a trend we're familiar with. But instead of popping today, the stock opened below that price and is down, call it 13%. So curious, uh, real quickly, Bob, I mean, what does this tell you? Is it specific to this company being lesser known? Um, People just kind of saying, look, I I already got my hits with Airbnb and DoorDash. I'm going home now. What do you think?
9: Yeah, there may be some company-specific and just general uh, exhaustion on the IPO space. Remember, an enormous amount of money was spent buying uh, DoorDash and Airbnb recently. This company does lose money. It's not an enormous company. And given all the publicity around Airbnb, I think it sucked up a little bit of the oxygen, the other ones, in the prior week. Well, I'll tell you what's important about this one, Kelly. This is the 20th uh, big IPO of the year, the 20th unicorn uh evaluation it float of initials uh, over a billion dollars we've never had a year with 20 unicorns in fact last year there were only nine so i look at these, some of these names here these are the bigger ones airbnb this is the amount they raised initially doordash uh you can see all these numbers here snowflake lufax warner music and it goes on and on rocket and unity software 20 i mean it's crazy if you would have told me in the beginning of of April, that this would be the second biggest year ever for IPOs, I would have told you we're crazy, but it is. If you look at the numbers here, we're going to raise seventy-eight billion dollars this year in IPOs so far. The record was twenty fourteen; it was eighty-five billion. That was the Alibaba year, eighty-five uh, twenty fourteen. Wow! So look how close we are. Th- this is crazy. I mean, I would no, have, it- seriously, Kelly, in April, would you have ever thought we'd have the second biggest IPO year? No, I would have said you were no, nuts.
2: No, never. If- If you told me the NASDAQ was going to be up 40% on the year, I would have said, you're crazy. If you told me the market was going to recover its March loss, I would have said, no way. I mean, it's one of many things that I think has surprised everybody about this year. And by the way, all I know about Wish is that I saw him on an NBA jersey patch. I don't even remember what team it was on. Uh, so maybe it's just a little bit of lack of retail familiarity with that one. But speaking of everything that Bob was just discussing, it's not just the IPO market that's been hot. The SPAC space, too. I mean, if you combine those proceeds, that's where we're getting some real records. Uh, and the prolific media dealmaker Arya Burkoff was on Squawk Box this morning talking about this boom. If you thought it was crazy before, he just said you could start seeing SPACs take people public. Listen.
3: It's frothy, it's flush, uh, but there's definitely talk of uh, uh, any uh, athlete or any uh, individual or even the Kardashians having an income stream or a brand that has cash flow. Uh, and you know 360 models around streaming and other forms of branded merchandising and e-commerce. Uh, it's not just an individual um, that's walking in the street. it's an individual that has a business plan around it that has a brand, and that business plan um, can go public.
1: What, what do you think, Mike, Kardashian's back? It would sell. Um, there is a, there's not a scarcity of assets in the world. There's a scarcity of reliable cash flows, and especially cash flows not necessarily correlated with the rest of the market. By the way, several years ago, we saw some attempt in this direction. Remember Fantex? That was an exchange that started up. It was going to be able to let you buy essentially the future income stream of athletes. Arian Foster of the Houston Texans was one mm-hmm. that did it. So this is not a, a unique idea, but I do think that things have gotten to a certain scale and liquidity as such and people's receptivity to new ideas is at a point when why not?
2: Seema, I agree. We've think seen this story this. before. We- the Fantex one Mike brings up, it, it never goes anywhere. No, I, I don't think we're going to see people. What do you think?
10: I don't know. I mean, TikTok and Instagram have clearly demonstrated that certain influencers can bring in a lot of money and monetize their own brand. I guess the question is ultimately whether there'll be investor appetite. I mean, I could imagine a scenario where you tell Robin Hood traders that you can buy Kim Kardashian stock or SPAC and you see this sort of flurry (laughs) to that. But um, it it remains to be seen. What happens from here?
9: Why word, Mr. it Think about what a SPAC is. Well, think about what a SPAC is. I always say it's basically, trust me, I'm famous, and I'm going to be the sponsor of your SPAC. I'm a famous name. You know me. Why can't uh, you have intellectual property? Why can't individuals represent essentially what the brand is and what they are selling and have that go public? I think it's going to happen in 2021. There's a bold call for you, Kelly. I
2: I don't know. Didn't the Kardashians have like an accounting problem with the Cody deal? Like, I, to Mike's point, you want stable, reliable, consistent cash flows, Bob, right? I mean, you could, Does anyone guarantee that?
9: Bowie did it. He sold his. I mean, didn't Bob Bob Dylan essentially monetize yeah, himself. You just, just have to attach he, it to a defined
1: set of rights or licenses or something that you can actually uh, keep analyzing as opposed to just, you know, whatever uh, Kim decides to do next year.
2: Right, exactly. (laughs) I believe it's everybody. Mike Santoli, Seema Modi, and Bob Bassani joining us for Rapid Fire today. Still ahead, we're a little less than 20 minutes away from the Fed's last decision on interest rates in what has been a wild and unprecedented year. Bring that to you right at 2 p.m. Eastern. But first, telehealth stocks are tanking as one tech giant may be looking to get into the space. The details next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Telehealth stocks are sinking today on a report that Amazon is taking another step into offering its own health service. Bertha Coombs joins us now with the latest. Bertha.
11: Kelly, it's no secret that Amazon has set its sights on health care, and now the giant is looking to expand its employee Amazon Care. This is a telehealth program that they had launched last year. Now they're looking to launch it for other employers. Amazon Care is this virtual care program that includes home visits. They launched it for their employees in Seattle about a year ago. Business Insider reporting that it has been reaching out to other employers about offering the plan. Now, officials at Zillow confirming CNBC that they did talk to Amazon about this, but at the moment they are not going to move forward. And that's where that stayed. Nonetheless, the news hitting telehealth firms like Teladoc and Amwell Hard, they've targeted employers and health systems who provide similar virtual primary care services. One Medical, which is another competitor in the space, which went public this year, uh, also would be a potential competitor. Well, GoodRx is also lower, lower after today, expanding its services beyond pharmacy discounts to offer members virtual doctor visits. Now, Amazon recently launched its own pharmacy, as we know, uh, for its prime members that includes a discount program. But that came after three years of acquiring PillPack. It takes a while to build these things up, and it could also take time to establish virtual care service. You know, obviously, COVID has made both providers and uh, patients much more willing to use this service but at this point uh, it's still very early and very competitive a spokesperson for amazon says they don't comment on speculation but she added amazon care is a healthcare care benefit pilot for amazon employees right now in the state of washington
2: kelly and Bertha, I didn't catch that uh, until you mentioned it. The GoodRx has now launched to telehealth. That's a, it's surprising to me. I don't know if, to, if if it was expected.
11: It's one of those things where. All of these firms are trying to expand beyond just doing the one doctor visit. So for GoodRx, it makes sense to move into this space because oftentimes when people are looking for a lower cost alternative, one of the things is to have access to telehealth. But people no longer want just a one and done sort of urgent care telehealth call for, you know, when your kid has an earache and might have an ear infection to be able to have a bit more of a relationship so that when you call, you're not just talking to a doctor who's a stranger, someone who knows your track record. That is the holy grail Hmm. right now. Amazon is looking, it seems, to try to offer that in that Amazon way for other employers.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. Bertha, thanks for bringing that to us, our Bertha Coombs as we watch the Stocks Under Pressure today. Coming up, Massachusetts filing suit against Robinhood, alleging it manipulated customers and used aggressive tactics to attract inexperienced investors. The potential fallout for the app is next. Speaking of apps, don't forget you can always watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Massachusetts regulators have filed a complaint against Robinhood, accusing the popular trading app of failing to act in the best interests of its users. Kate uh, Rooney has more for us. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kelly. Massachusetts regulators are accusing Robinhood of
4: what they call aggressive tactics in marketing inexperienced investors using gamification to manipulate those customers and failure to prevent outages on that trading platform this year. In a complaint this morning, the state highlights Robinhood's revenue model of payment for order flow. They say it drives that startup to offer trading to more new investors without properly screening them. In one example, Robinhood allowed a Massachusetts user with no experience to make more than 12,000 trades in just six months. Regulators also point to incentives like confetti popping up on screens after trades and offers for Robinhood customers who are more active on that app to move up on waitlists for new products. This was the first enforcement of a Massachusetts fiduciary rule, which Secretary of the Commonwealth William Galvin began enforcing in September. Galvin telling CNBC this morning that Robinhood was too focused on growth at all costs.
1: It's very clear that this is a very reckless company when it comes to these investors. They're interested in expanding their market base. They're not interested in serving their investors.
4: Robinhood says they disagree with the allegations and plan to defend the company vigorously. They've worked to scale up systems after those outages. They say they've made improvements to options products and they've added more safeguards. Kelly.
2: Yeah, it seems like uh, the first of a wave that could be coming uh, from states and different people directed Robin Hood's way. Kate, thanks so much. Kate Rooney joining us with the latest there. That does it for The Exchange today, but don't go anywhere. We're just moments away from the Fed's latest rate decision. I'll join Tyler Matheson on Power Lunch on the other side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time.